Hello, and welcome to Fintech Surge Podcast, creating a wealth of opportunities through fintech innovations in the Middle East for the Middle East. Powered by Fintech Surge, the region's leading fintech festival, hosted by the BioWorld Trade Center alongside Jitex Global. We are holding these webinar series bi-weekly, and we are very happy to have Stefan here uh, for a 10th recording. Thank you so much. Hello. Hello. Hi. Oh, yeah. um, could you please uh, introduce yourself with a little bit of background from your financial uh, background as well? Absolutely. First of all, thank you for having me here. And it's always a pleasure to chat, um, especially about Bitcoin and, and the crypto asset economy. Um, I've been uh, trading most of my career. So most the better part of my career I've spent on the trading floor in uh, in funds, in the uh, edge funds or in uh, um, uh, the proprietary capacity at different banks. And I've been trading uh, equity derivatives, really. So after I've had the, the, the luck of being exposed to many markets. I've worked in Japan, in Singapore, in the US, in the UK, in Europe. So I've seen a lot of things in terms of markets, market behavior, market models, products, and so on. And uh, what I've been doing mostly falls down in two categories. Number one, electronic execution, which can be uh, seen as you know startup when it's principal uh, capacity or it can be algo trading when it's uh, agency capacity and then the second thing that i've been doing uh, is uh, securities finance which is really collateralized finance and so on and we see a lot of that happening in the crypto space so both are becoming more and more relevant um, and i started looking at crypto when i left my last position which was at a smaller uh, investment bank in paris i was very curious about the crypto space and being a, an equity derivatives trader, the first question I ask myself is, number one, what are those things? And then when I had an idea about what those things were, or, or, or a fair idea, I figured, okay, it seems to be trading a lot, but it, are those really liquid? Is Bitcoin and those assets, are they really liquid? I couldn't find the answer um, or a satisfactory answer. And I will, I'm sure we'll come back to that, what it means in terms of institutional standard um, a satisfactory answer about liquidity. So we decided to start the company, Sunzu, with um, uh, my associate um, and someone who's also been exposed to the crypto space. And what we do, and again, I'm sure we'll come back to that, we propose transparency. We offer transparency in the world of electronic execution, liquidity, pre-trade, post-trade, and a number of things that regulators have found to be quite critical in the traditional space, but lacking in the space of crypto. And so we are trying to bridge that gap. Thank you. And um, we are joined here today with the manager of Future Blockchain Summit, Oscar. Uh, would you mind introducing yourself and starting off the conversation? Yes, uh, thank you for having me, Hayate. Uh, I work with uh, Dubai World Trade Center and uh, we've got the Future Blockchain Summit coming up on the 6th, 10th to the 13th of uh, October where Cointelegraph will be joining us along with uh, Sansu Labs. Uh, we met in France actually back in uh, April at the Paris Blockchain Week, and I was absolutely fascinated by uh, what they are doing. And it, it really opened my eyes as to what the issues are with crypto exchanges and crypto trading and what really needs to be done to get it on par with traditional finance. <clears throat> so I'm looking forward to this discussion. The, uh, Stefan is a professor in uh, finance at the University of Bordeaux, and it's not often you get the chance to really go in depth with uh, someone with experience from deep experience from both of these worlds and uh, hope to get a chance with you, Hayate, to really delve into uh, many of the 
the challenges that are facing regulators as well uh, to uh, deal with what we've seen in the, the last month with uh, market volatility and uh, systemic risk that uh, many of these funds have had. So uh, how shall we kick off the discussion? Yes, I would definitely like for you to start with all these risks that you see and addressing that with Stefan and what you think the transparency and regulations should work on this matter. <laughs> so you so you're starting me on risks, right? See, okay, fair <laughs> enough. That's that's a very interesting question. The thing about uh, we've 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 taken a lot of time thinking about risks at Sunzu. We are looking specifically at transparency risk, but beyond the transparency risk, there is a. It's very interesting to look at what traditional what the traditional market um, have become in terms of risk management and what the crypto market is about to become. Number one. The first remark you can make is that there is there are very similar risks in both spaces, but the crypto adds more of those. Unfortunately, it's not a less risky environment. Let's take a few of those examples. For example, cryptography is one. I mean, you don't have any cryptographic risk in traditional markets because, of course, you have cryptography technology and so on, but it's not so exposed. Number two, you have an on-chain, off-chain dichotomy in the crypto space, which you don't have in the traditional space. And so those two, for example, uh, are very uh, are new. They are not. Uh, they are nowhere to be found in the traditional space. And then the KYC, IML, know your customer, anti-money laundering uh, questions for crypto space takes a whole new meaning because of where the technology comes from. Okay, so you, you have that risk obviously in the traditional space, but it's much um, it's more mature. So it's more uh, it's better um, understood and it's better managed. So the first remark is really okay when you look at uh, risk on both sides, you have to realize that there is more risk in the capital space than there is in the traditional space. Okay, so that gives you a sense of where you should be looking at with an entirely new eye, a new analysis grid, which you don't have elsewhere. Okay, cryptography, the wallet, and all those things, plus the fact that on-chain and off-chain are really different. So that's the first remark. The second remark, even if you look at common risks, they are not of the same magnitude. Okay, the most common risk in the crypto space is one that has been dealt with for a long time in the traditional space, and that's the counterpart risk. Really what the traditional space has been trying to do, regulators, market practitioners, everybody has been trying to address uh, or mitigate the counterpart risks. The fact that somebody could run away with your money. Either you enter into a transaction and then the, those, that transaction is not settled properly, so you send the cash and you don't receive the, the asset you were supposed to receive. That's one uh, type of risk or the fact that somebody would <laughs> take your money away from the system and, and steal it. That's the second type of counterpart risk. Um, so there are different subcategories of counterpart risk, but in the traditional space, everything is arranged to get rid of that risk. For example, governance. You have a three-stage governance in traditional space. You have front office, middle office, back office. That seems to be very complex and costly and useless. The fact of the matter is, it is very complex and uh, costly, but it's not useless because it means that at one single point in time, nobody has enough information or enough power or enough secrets, enough secrets to go with the money. It also in, it also enables um, uh, what we call a reconciliation process, whereby before a transaction is fully uh, registered, every, a few pairs of, of eyes have had a chance to look at it. Okay. Now, this is in traditional space. In the crypto space, this is the most common and the most prevalent risk. 
the fact that when you're trading on exchange, for example, you have a custodial exchange in front of you, so you're sending money and cash to an exchange, um, which, by the way, is not related. So you have no guarantee whatsoever that you will re get your cash back or your crypto back, except the fact that the exchange has a reputational risk. And, and in some cases, it's, it's regulated, but in most cases, it's not. And that counterpart risk is extremely important because it essentially means that you can lose 100% of your money you're sending, okay? And that, um, that I think, and that's my opinion, but uh, I, I've heard it a number of times, that I think is um, underestimated in the crypto space, okay? The fact that you have compensation um, clearing houses, the fact that you have uh, uh, centralized clearing houses in particular, but centralized risk management in terms of exchanges and so on, this is all meant to mitigate that counterpart risk in cash and derivatives product. In the crypto space, you, you, you can do that in many ways, but if you don't accept a certain degree of centralization and risk management, then there's no way you're going to get rid of your counterpart risk. And see, that's the balance between centralization and decentralization. In terms of risk management, you can take it any way you want. Centralization means less collateral, less guarantee. It means less risk, in fact. And so um, the fact that, that custodial exchanges in crypto are not structured with a, um, a, clearing, a central clearinghouse, it's an understandable choice in a decentralized world, but it means that my counterpart risk as an investor is um, not going down anytime soon. So that's really the, the first one. And then there are a number of ones, a number of other ones, liquidity is one of them. And then you have you know, different things, but, but really the, the one that I want to focus on early on is counterpart risk because that's one of the major ones I see in, in crypto. Not yeah, Oscar, uh, we just, uh, we were talking about the counterparty risk regarding the Luna crash. Do you want to delve into this? Yeah, how can the regulators have foreseen that or helped to uh, mitigate this risk that you've seen uh, with, with Luna and an extension, what you've seen with uh, Celsius now and uh, it seems that with the halting of trade on the exchanges as well, it, it, it's really the, the, the risk has not been properly managed or foreseen as it would have in traditional markets. That's, yeah, because it's exactly what's um, going on, right? Now, let me add a word about that because because it's a, see, the, the crypto space has been designed, has been um, written, has been coded by people who are essentially geeks, okay? Um, this is not a judgment, by the way, okay? You can be very smart and very geeky. There's no, there's no uh, uh, judgment in, in calling someone a geek, but those are people with a lot of tech, with a lot of deep appetite for tech, okay? And with a very strong belief that tech can solve anything. Well, the fact of the matter, and you know that they are, and you, you, you learn that they are in when you're trading on finance, is that tech doesn't solve anything or doesn't solve everything. You need to have judgment, you need to have appreciation, you need to have experience. Okay, so when you're going to a trading floor, the first thing that the risk manager will request is a, an automatized format for your risk management um, uh, risk uh, analysis. So you have predefined scenarios and so on and so forth. So that's the tech part. You can simulate whatever you want. You can you can replay some scenarios from the crack in '87 and then 2008, and you can do a number of things. That's where the tech comes in. Fine, but at the end of the day, what do you do? 
mistake doesn't mean it's actionable. You need a judgment, you need somebody to make a decision and decide whether or not to reduce your risk and whether or not the stress test in, includes every component. And that's what happened with Terra, if you ask me. You can have incentives, you can have uh, algorithms, you can have a lot of things, a lot of things are coded to do risk management. At the end of the day, when the confidence is not here, people will not behave as they were supposed to behave. So with all these incentives of the world, people will not come in and market make your token because confidence is not there, because um, risk appetite comes and goes, especially in terms of crisis. And those are things uh, uh, traders and financial risk managers know. They know that the hypothesis on paper will not materialize and you should have a stress test. And the stress test is not only about tech, it's also about Okay, what happens if the tech functions properly, but then the risk appetite is not there, liquidity is not there, investors do not behave as they are supposed to. And that's what was missing in the Terra debacle. And probably what is missing in a number of other places, the idea that you could replace risk management and experience with algorithms, very, very interesting. It's very cost efficient. It just doesn't work that way. So what risks do you see now? Uh, I want to touch on um, the stable coins, uh, the other stable coins. Is there a risk of, uh, for instance, Tether has seen a massive uh, adjustment to its uh, market capitalization. I want to uh, hear your comments on what you can see in the data and what further ripple effects uh, are at stake. So we've we've talked about it before. So I know I know of course that that tether is a it's a very um, it's a very uh, a touchy subject. Okay, uh, there's been a lot of comments, a lot of speculation about tether and so on and so forth. Um, let me let me start by saying one uh, uh, by giving one piece of information. There is something which is called an ETF exchange traded fund in the traditional finance. An ETF is a fund, so it's a legal format of a fund. Um, it has two characteristics. The first one is traded on exchange. Okay, fine. So you can buy it and, and sell it on exchange. The second characteristic, it's creatable and redeemable. So you can take the asset. For example, if you have an S&P 500, the spider, which is a trust, uh, an ETF trust on the S&P 500 index, you can take uh, the shares and bring it to the index sponsor and leave S&P 500 shares and you can create shares of the ETF or you can do the other way around uh, 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 take the ETF shares and bring them to the sponsor okay why I'm talking about that because Tether is supposed to be working the same way so you can bring in money and you get the uh, tokens or you can bring in the token and get the money okay so it's it's a mechanism which is very uh, Common. There's nothing new right there. So you create and redeem uh, shares of the fund as you would for any other fund, except it's not a fund, except it's not regulated, except Tether doesn't have any obligation to publish its reserves. For that matter, to publish anything because it's incorporated in a jurisdiction, British Virgin Island, if I'm not mistaken, and there are a couple of companies involved. So maybe not all of them are incorporated in the British Virgin Island, but those jurisdictions do not necessarily force disclosure or transparency. So as of today, do we have a full certainty about Tether reserves? I don't, because from what I've seen on their website and what I've seen in terms of public information, I found it to be unconvincing. 
Okay. So the mechanism, something that exists, but it exists in a world where regulation is very heavy and investors are protected in the world of crypto, the same mechanism exists, except it doesn't provide the same level of protection. So to your question, is there, are there questions about Tether? Of course there are questions about Tether. And when you're talking to people in the crypto space, everybody has the same question. Whether or not they are asking them publicly is a different matter, but everybody is asking them privately, is Tether really holding all its reserves as it should or not, okay? So I tend to think that there would be easy ways for the company to, to provide full proof uh, of their reserves, which would be to go and see any central bank anywhere and ask for an audit. I'm still uncertain as to why they're not doing it, okay? Now, the fact that the volume of Tether, the capitalization of Tether will increase and decrease of the market is a very interesting aspect, okay? If you look at the volume of money in circulation in an economy, when you have economic growth, the volume of money tends to the, the, the monetary mass tend to increase and vice versa. With Tether, you see similar effect. There's been a lot of uh, increase in capitalization when the market was moving up, and there's been another decrease when the market was moving down. So Tether reminds us, reminds us of a central bank, okay? Because a lot of transactions are done against stablecoin. People are buying and selling against stablecoin. So if the prices go up, then the, 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 the inventory of stablecoin needs to go up and down. So the mechanism, Again, reminds us of a, of, a, of a, an exchange fund on one side, and then a central bank on the other. Okay, when you, when you have said that, you're starting to see a picture where Tether plays a very significant role in the ecosystem. It provides liquidity, safe liquidity, so that you can risk your, you can take your risk off and still get stay in the crypto system without exiting the crypto system. So the, the where I'm taking you, I'm taking you to a place where Tether has a very particular role to play. It has a very big capitalization, and yet there is no agreed standard of auditing, and there is no real convincing institutional proof of the fact that that's its reserves. So it's a key point of failure, because it's just no way of saying otherwise. Um, and because it has taken such a, um, an, a very big importance in the in the ecosystem, it's a point of failure which is become more and more visible. Okay, now um, there's a, there's been a lot of theories, theories, and and and, and come going around about the fact that there was manipulation, there was creation of tether that was that was uh, meant to facilitate the buying of Bitcoin in the market in 2017. There were people publishing. Look, a few people published an article about that, an article about that, and then the, the same speculation has been going on. I don't know whether that's true or not, and I have no way of knowing. Okay, but certainly there's been some strange coincidences between some movements on one side uh, on capitalization and on the Bitcoin and the other. So again, um, if Tether plays such an important role in the ecosystem and in the direction of uh, price movements maybe we should consider more regulation. And that's, by the way, exactly what the uh, US authorities are saying. They're saying, okay, stablecoins play, play a very particular role, so we should regulate them. And by the way, when we shouldn't be targeting light regulation, we should be targeting the same regulation that we apply to critical um, elements of the traditional financial system, which are monetary funds. So the MMF money market fund is a very old construct in traditional finance. 
And essentially, what central, what the, the, the Fed and regulators in the US are saying is the, the same cause they are having the same effect. We should regulate stablecoin the same way we regulate money market funds, which is very heavy regulation because we're talking about an instrument that is paramount to the proper functioning of, uh, of modern capital markets. By the way, when Neiman failed in 2008, the first point of data that showed there was a significant crisis in liquidity was um, money market fund. It was one particular money market fund that essentially failed mm -hmm. um, and its net asset value um, uh, decreased uh, very quickly and abruptly because of macro market losses. That was the first sign and the most important sign that there was a big problem coming up. Um, and the regulation of MMF has since evolved uh, significantly. But the same reasoning applies to uh, stablecoin. If they do play such a role in uh, crypto finance, then they should be regulated in similar fashion. So I want to ask in a hypothetical scenario, <clears throat> let's say that the tether is not backed as they claim it is. And there is a run on tether. Everybody cashes in the tether. And their luck would be called because they cannot, they don't have the, the resource, the, the liquidity to pay out. And as I understand it, then Tether would uh, be depegged and lose its value. And let's say that uh, stablecoins no longer has the faith in the market. What would be the impact on the crypto industry overall when there isn't this function of stablecoins as they are used today for as a conduit between uh, uh, getting money out of exchanges into bank accounts and uh, uh, trading on exchanges? Well, if let me put it this way. If you buy an asset because it's a risk of asset, that is, you want to remain in the crypto system, but you want to manage with risk and don't carry market risk anymore. And if that asset turns out to be, uh, in fact, a very risky asset because its spec value doesn't hold anymore, but then the world collapses. Okay, It's like you are buying uh, US government bonds because they are a safe asset, and suddenly you realize that it's not safe anymore and it's worth 50, 60, 70 cents on the dollar then uh, nothing is safe anymore, okay? So th that's the first uh, point of answer. If we were to discover that Tether is not backed and that the expect $1 value doesn't hold, it's the end of um, trust and confidence in the system. It's the end of Tether, by the way, first and foremost, and that yeah. would probably bring in a lot of class action and so on. But that would be the end of the confidence you can have in the overall system because the, the riskless asset you hold, and in finance, in, in uh, theoretical finance, uh, there is always a riskless asset. I mean, Black and Scholes and all those things, there is always a riskless asset. So if that asset turns out to be risk, not riskless, but risky, then you have a major, major problem. So the confidence in the market would evaporate. And most probably a lot of people would run for the exit, which would mean a, 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 a crack, it would mean a crash probably of the magnitude of the ones we've seen in May last year, um, and of the ones we've seen over the past few months. Okay, so it's it's a very very serious blow to the overall credibility of the crypto ecosystem, which is a systemic risk. We call that in finance a systemic risk. So the risks that the system would essentially fail. Okay, um, 
So that, that at the first order, this is really what you could expect because the, the, the most basic element fails to hold its promises. Now, so go ahead, go ahead, Oscar. Just, so what you are saying then is that much of the crypto industry is very much dependent on the stable coins. And if there is an uncertainty about the backing of Tether, which is the biggest stable coin, shouldn't the crypto industry look to de-risk itself from its dependence on Tether? And uh, wouldn't uh, a Fed coin uh, solve the problem of simply being the, the conduit that Tether serves as today? Alors, the answer is yes, but let me come back to the early um, part of your question. What I'm essentially saying is that in the world of crypto, uh, which is built on different uh, 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 assumptions than the traditional finance, but um, in, in fact, an algorithmic one, the idea that you can build trust through an algorithm, whether it's the proof of work, or whatever consensus you can um, uh, implement, that, that in fact is not, um, is not true. You need trust and confidence. You need trust and confidence. In the particular case of Tether, you need to convince yourself that Tether has its reserves. Otherwise, you will never enter into crypto space and hold Tether. And if you don't hold Tether, why would you hold another stable coin? Because some of them are more regulated, but at the end of the day, none of them is really regulated like a market fund. So that ecosystem needs confidence. Whether it wants it or not, it's a very important part of the fabric of the system. Okay. That is probably not going to be accepted um, widely because it, the crypto ecosystem has been, has been built on the rejection of confidence as an uh, important element. It's, it, it's predicated on the fact that you can out code everything and everything will be okay. But we are past the point where this is not true anymore. Terra is a the proof that it just doesn't work, the world doesn't work that way. Number one. Number two, you said, okay, if Tether has a problem, if Tether has a big problem, number one, um, how much of a problem would it have? If you recall 2008 and the, the, the subprime issue, a big, big uncertainty and a big element in the crisis, we knew that the banks were holding assets that were not valued at their fair value. We just didn't know how much that value was. So the variance on the value simply made um, any um, uh, calculation very difficult. What I'm saying is essentially you didn't know Lehman faith, but for the others that stayed alive with the, without transparency and without clear visibility on their balance sheet, you essentially were not able to say whether they were still alive or dead. Okay, so not, the fact that there's a problem is one point, but the magnitude of the problem is the second point, and you need clarity on the magnitude of the problem. So, in answer, we apply if you apply this reasoning to Tether, it's one thing to know that Tether doesn't have enough reserves. It's another thing to know how much, how far we are from the truth, because you know five percent is not fifty percent, which is not seventy percent. So that's the second element of answer. Now, the third thing you said is okay. Now, the, the, would shouldn't the crypto ecosystem and investors try to move away from such from such a systemic risk? Okay, in theory, you're right. People should move away from that. And there are different ways to move away from that. Number one, you could move away from Tether itself. Try to go into stable coins that are regulated in 
differently and, 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 and if possible that are more regulated, that's one way to do that. But another way would be to request Tether more transparency, you know, simply ask the firm and, you know, and, and try to get the firm to provide the transparency that everybody needs. As far as I'm, I'm aware, this second option is not happening. I'm, and maybe I'm missing something, but I'm not seeing a lot of noise around uh, full disclosure or around enhanced disclosure of Tether. Apparently, a lot of people are being satisfied by what the company puts out on its website and so on and so forth, okay? Which is to me very surprising. But anyway, it seems to be the case. So shouldn't the ecosystem ask for more safety? Probably, should it move away? It depends on how much of safety is on the horizon and so on. Should the ecosystem be ready to accept, be willing to accept more regulation? Absolutely, especially on that compartment, okay? Um, is it the case? I don't know. It doesn't feel like the ecosystem is willing to accept much more regulation on stable coins, but it certainly feels that the regulator has identified that compartment to be uh, in need of more regulation. Essentially, I'm convinced that they have been looking at stablecoin the same way a lot of people have been looking at stablecoin, including myself, which is it's a very key element because it's supposed to be risk-free. It has to be risk-free because that's the foundation on which you build everything else. So if it's not risk-free, then we have a serious problem. And I'm sure the regulator aligned with that, and in particular with Tesla, because Tesla seems to be the biggest one and there still 50 or 70 billion, even if it's if it decreased recently, they are still very, very big. So should the ecosystem request more transparency slash regulation? Yes. Are they? I don't know. But certainly the regulator is pushing in, in that direction. Yeah. What are your thoughts, Hayate? Well, uh, you know, I, I hear a lot of our crypto people say that um, they have gone away from USDT, but you just said that USDC and all those other uh, stable coins um, are not as regulated as traditional finance either. So yes, we, we uh, probably have to go deeper into the regulations for, especially for stable coin then, like you say. But how has Tether managed to get the position that it has? Uh, I mean, seeing that the, the function of Tether is to be pegged to the dollar, and then you've got the same similar issues with other stable coins that are um, Coinbase uh, stating that uh, if it goes bankrupt, uh, it would go to its creditors before you can claim the, their stable coins, as I understand. This, this doesn't seem very convincing to me either as being a, the currency of the crypto industry. I, I mean, what is the long-term solution to, to these issues? I mean, you need to know what currency you're holding. Okay, the first question you ask, Oscar, is whether, um, how, how we came to um, be in that situation, okay? So let's say I'm a, I'm a manager of Tether um, token, okay? Let's say I have 100 million of Tether, 100 million of uh, reserves. What prevents me from issuing one or one more one or a million more tethers in the form of tokens, using them to buy Bitcoin and, and place that Bitcoin back in the reserve? Mm -hmm. Nothing. At the yeah. end of that exercise, I am uh, finding myself with 200 million of tether and 200 million of Bitcoin. 
Okay, so if I was a regulated entity and when the market fund, there is there would be no way for me to do that because I would print uh, shares of the fund before I receive money, which is absolutely impossible in traditional finance. Is it impossible in the world of crypto finance? I don't think so. Okay, so how do we? And I'm not saying that Tether did that. I just don't know. But what I'm saying is, it's certainly possible to envision that they would be doing that, which, by the way, would have a, a, the peripheral effect of pushing Bitcoin price up because suddenly I have 100 million of Bitcoin to buy. Okay, that essentially is what some people say happened in 2017. And again, I don't know, so I'm not pushing any accusation. What I'm saying is, if you think about it, suddenly it's very, very possible. Okay. What's the problem with that situation? Well, there are a few problems. Number one is if you do that and you haven't disclosed that you would be willing to do that, then you're essentially lying on your um, business. Okay, if you tell people, okay, I'm going to take the liberty of printing feathers or printing any stable coin, and I will use that inventory to buy any other coin that I see fit, Fine, you say that and you do it, and there's no problem. People will buy Tesla because they've been informed. If you haven't informed anybody, then you're finding yourself in breach of confidence because that's not what you are supposed to do. So that's the first problem, breach of confidence. The second problem is that suddenly you have Tesla backed by um, collateral, which is Bitcoin, and the value of that collateral is supposed to is, is, is susceptible to move. Okay, so if the Bitcoin is divided by two, then I don't have it to a million of Bitcoin, I have to a million of Tether, and then one million of Bitcoin, which essentially breaks the parity. So the second problem is I find myself in a situation where I'm under collateralized on the claims of my issuance of Tether. Why am I under collateralized? Because I've bought an asset which is not safe. Okay. Except that in that particular case, you don't have the Tether anymore. So you could reduce your Tether inventory and burn those tokens, except you don't have them because you spend them to buy Bitcoin, okay? So you can you don't have control over the inventory. Okay, so you find yourself in the typical situation of a Ponzi scheme, where you have a claim that is being, uh, that, it was, that is not being um, uh, protected or, or guaranteed by asset, by real asset, but it's protected by a claim on a collateral and that collateral that doesn't have the value that it's supposed to have, okay? That is also a very serious problem. And again, I'm not saying that's okay, but what I'm saying is it's very possible to envision that Tether at some point was in that um, situation. If they decided to print Tether to buy stablecoin, to buy a Bitcoin or any other coin for that matter. So which that's why it's very important to know what Tether has in terms of reserves. If they have cash or cash equivalent or government bonds or certificate of deposit and so on, fine that the collateral is safe and the value of the token is safe. But they have, if they have, uh, if they don't have those reserves, but have other types of reserves, then um, then the peg is another question. So it's not only a question of amount of reserves versus the token issued. It's a question of risk. Am I might, I may have the proper reserves today, but I may not have the proper reserves tomorrow because I'm exposed to market risk. So it may be all fine today, and then tomorrow suddenly, if Bitcoin loses 20%, I find myself 20% under collateralized. So there is an element of inventory, static inventory, what are the results today, and there's an element of dynamic inventory, what will those become tomorrow? And that's true of Tether, it's true of any stablecoin. By the way, it's, it was true of Terra. It was an algorithmic stablecoin, but it was maintained with reserves, 
that were supposed to obey a certain algorithm and eventually broke down. This is true of, across all stable coins. You have an element of inventory. Am I collateralized properly now? And what is going to happen if my collateral loses in value? Okay. Um, and so, because those are supposed to be the risk free assets, again and again, we come back to that. I'm not supposed to be exposed. The collateralization of the assets, that is risk management 101. I spent you know, my entire career looking at uh, collateralized transactions. This is what we do all day long in securities finance. You lend money and you collateralize that. And the first thing you do is you check the value of your collateral and you, you, and you anticipate when that collateral will increase or decrease in value and you adjust to margin calls. So if, if those stable coins, Tether being one of them, don't have a proper risk management practice in place and we are heading for very serious problems, especially in right now when the market is very low. I mean, my, my um, view on this is the mere fact that we don't have these answers without, any, without making any accusations on Tether and other stable coins, to me, is a very serious problem when you're dealing with, uh, with an exchange uh, and something that regulators have to address because the whole assumption is that, uh, uh, as, as you're saying, I mean, the 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 other coins that are not, I mean the other cryptocurrencies they have a relative value whatever they are trading at but the assumption with the stable coin is that the value you have in stable coins is the risk free asset that that is uh, in in the system so uh, how can regulators address this in in terms of uh, I mean everyone is competing to become the crypto capital of the world and uh, licensing exchanges. That's that's one question. I want to move that on to the the accountability and recourse in the case of uh, crypto exchanges being hacked and you lose all your funds. What are the responsibilities of regulators in such a case? Um, it, it, before we get to that, let me comment on one, one of the things you said. You said whether there was a federal digital dollar. I mean, if there was a federal digital dollar, it would essentially solve those problems entirely. You could yeah. have a digital federal dollar on the blockchain somewhere, um, and you could use that to buy Bitcoin or, or, or any kind of other token. So, but that, by the way, there is one solution. You know, you can you can go and audit several coins reserve, of course. But another solution would be to accept the idea of an official dollar, a digital dollar. That would also be an acceptable solution. It doesn't kill the crypto ecosystem. It helps them tremendously. Okay, so that's one one um, one quick remark on what you said. Now coming back to exchanges. Um, the what you have to understand, and, and I need to, to to put a bit of uh, uh, um, to explain a few things. When you need when you need to understand with uh, capital market finance is the the counterpart risk is managed in a very specific way. Okay, so if let me let me explain. If we trade together, Oscar, and we trade on two and OTC, we do a swap. We do whatever we do, we do a, a, a financial transaction, and the value of that transaction will change every day with mark to market. Okay, so someday I will owe you money, someday you will owe me money. Okay, so what we do is we put in place margin calls between us. The margin call is the mark to market, meaning when you owe me money, you actually pay me that money so that if you go and if you become insolvent from one day to, to the next, then I don't lose any money. Or if you, you know, God forbid, fall under a, a, a car or a bus or whatever, then I don't lose money in that transaction. Okay, so the idea is we have margin calls. And those margin calls are 
being paid out every day. Okay, with, between financial institutions, it's the same. Now, the, the problem with that is you have to have, you have to operate in a legal system whereby if uh, a corporation fails, I find my money back. If my counterpart fails, I find my money back. As it happens, this is not the case under common law because you have a chapter seven or liquidation or chapter 11, essentially when a corporation fails, it's taken over by an administrator and everything is frozen. And so under common law practice, if two corporations or two financial institutions do business together, and if one of them fails, then the other one doesn't get its mark-to-market or its collateral or its guarantee. It loses money because the, the, the standard practice is for the administrator to freeze everything. Okay, now the answer that capital markets have brought to that problem is to have a specific, um, specific exceptions. Okay, so you have a, a part of the law that says that under specific circumstances, if you're a regulated institution, if you enter an OTC transaction with someone, then you can reclaim your guarantee even before the administrator freezes the assets. Okay, so that's the first degree protection for specific financial transactions as an exception to the liquidation code or to the administration code that you have under common law for corporate law. Okay, what do I mean by that? I mean by that, then, then when you are, the reason why I'm going to do business with you is that I know because it's written in this specific exception that if you fail, I'm going to get my money back before anybody else before even your spouse or before your children, before anybody gets money, I'm going to be reimbursed what you owe me because we are trading or we are doing business under a specific exception to the liquidation code and so on and so forth. Okay, so once you understand that, what it means is to operate safely, financial institutions need to be under a specific exception from the general common law of insolvency or bankruptcy protection. Okay. When you don't have that and you, your counterparty fails, it means that you're going to see an insolvency judge and you're going to wait in line like everybody else before you get your money. Okay? So why the reason why I'm explaining this in no details is Coinbase released a statement very, very recently. They said that they reminded those investors that those investors were common um, debt holder if the company went bankrupt, they are not uh, the beneficiaries of any particular protection. So if you are an account holder at Coinbase and Coinbase fails, you're not gonna get any protection, specific protection, similar to the one you would be getting if a bank failed, because a bank is subject to the exception and the regulatory banking world says that if you're, you have your money at a bank, you are a creditor of the bank and that money is earmarked for you. And if you're a financial institution and you trade with a bank, there is a margin pool somewhere that you are entitled to keep. That's an exception to the law. Coinbase and many others, by the way, don't fall into that exception because they are not regulated as financial institutions. So if you're an account holder at Coinbase and Coinbase phase, you're not gonna get your money. You're gonna wait in line like everybody else when there is a corporate failure or the corporate insolvency, everybody waits to be paid. It takes whatever it takes in terms of time and you're getting, the money you're getting only depends on assets, liabilities, 
There's usually less asset than liabilities, otherwise you're not going under, and you're getting paid whatever you're getting paid when you're getting paid. And you have no certainty about the amount and you have certainty about the time. Okay. Why did Conveys um, take that step to remind its account holders of that specific point? I don't know. But the fact of the matter is that they did remind their account holder of that point because it's true. Because Coinbase is a corporation, it's regulated as a corporation, it's not a financial institution, and even though it does trading in Bitcoin and other digital assets, those not being regulated in the US as financial instruments, that corporation doesn't fall under the exception that I just mentioned, so its, it's uh, uh, clients aren't getting any particular protection. Okay, so at the end of all this, you get a situation where nobody in the crypto space uh, at Coinbase or any other for that matter is getting any particular protection. So you're, you're just in line to get your asset if there is a liquidation. That is a huge difference to what's happening with any kind of bank anywhere in the world. Any or reason, any custodian. Uh, of an, of or any custodian, of course. So, so, so is, is this acceptable? Is this how it's going to be in the crypto market or will it have to change to be um, okay. My my feeling number one, Coinbase is being transparent about it. Okay, which is a very important point. So they are saying, look, guys, you have to wait in line. You're not you're not getting the protection you would be getting from a financial institution, which is it's probably a big, it's probably compulsory for them to say that. But it's fair that they are saying that so that their account holders can make an informed decision about whether or not they want to stay. Or whether or not they want to leave. So that's number one. Number two, does it have to change? It are, I don't know how many accounts Coinbase has, but probably 50, 60, 70 million. I don't know. So all those people find it acceptable. So it's a question of risk appetite. Do I need to be protected if I do business with Coinbase? No, I don't need to be protected. If I'm told what my risk is, then it's up to me to decide whether or not I take it. Well, that's fair. Okay. Um, now, do I need more protection if I? want to gain a more massive adoption, my opinion is yes. If you really want to go after the, the, the non-professional, non-financial um, uh, non public, the general, the common public, the layman, if you really want to go after that particular person and hope that this person will invest part of its savings in uh, digital assets, you need to go all the way in terms of protection because that particular person doesn't have a clue about what I've just explained. They don't know, they don't want to know, they don't have a clue, they just want to be safe and comfortable. And when Coinbase makes this kind of statement, they don't even understand what it's, what it's about, in fact. So uh, my conviction, but that's my personal conviction, is that for adoption to rise to the levels where people would be anybody would be comfortable with part of its portfolio in the digital assets, then the regulation would have to rise as well. And that regulation would have to converge to the standard of protection that are being um, offered to common investors in traditional financial markets. So yes, I would, I would advocate some sort of convergence, okay? Because, because protection, as I said, we are, we are living in societies that are governed by laws, corporate law and, uh, um, and, and financial regulation. And so that conversion seems to be um, a reasonable proposition if you really want to push for adoption in people, in, in, in a population which is not sophisticated. 
So what are you seeing among the capitals? Among, I mean, Paris is looking to attract uh, crypto exchanges, Dubai, uh, we here at the World Trade Center with VARA, and uh, Singapore is much in the spotlight and Hong Kong. How do you see these different um, capitals? Uh, yeah, it's, 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 we are not in the business of you know, gathering intelligence on different platforms and different uh, capitals. What we're seeing is um, trends. Um, so, so what I'm going to say may be approximate and maybe uh, may not be 100% uh, accurate, and I apologize for that. But what we're seeing is that trends um, French was a precursor in many ways. Okay, there, there were a couple of uh, uh, legal initiatives. One is the the uh, uh, the PSAN, uh, the, the uh, status, which is a regulated. Uh, it's not a regulation a regulated status per se, but it's a it's a, um, a declaration where you, you just register with the regulator saying I'm going to do business on this particular um, asset or this particular type of business and so on. So that was. Um, there was nothing new because there was there was a big license in New York and so on, but that was welcome at a time where there was a lot of uncertainty in the government. That was a way of saying government would welcome the industry. Okay, um, and there were a few more things and items on um, accepting the blockchain technology as a register for corporate life. And you could you can register, you can hold the register of a fund company of a corporation onto a blockchain and it's that legal strains in terms of registry and so on. Um, so there's, there's been a number of things happening. The problem is, um, it's always a thing, it's the end investor, it's a demand. Regulators in France, regulators in Europe, regulators in many jurisdictions always uh, encounter the same difficulties. At the, at the investor level, at the unsophisticated investor level, you need to add a protection. Okay, so you may attract all the people you want, you may attract the businesses, the activities, you may attract the fund manager, the exchanges, whatever type of business you want to attract on your territory, you will always end up asking the same question, how much protection do I want my non-professional investor to have? So the, the the answer to that question is very difficult. The industry would say, okay, you should let them play. The regulators will say, I cannot accept this um, opinion. I should not let them play with their money without uh, uh, at least the beginnings of a protection similar to what they've been used to in traditional finance. And so to, regardless of where you are, where you operate, you always have the same question. Regulators that push for non-professional investors protection and the industry that pushes for a lot more leeway in interpretations you know sandbox feeling where okay give us a sandbox we play in it except the industry wants a very large sandbox with pretty much everybody in it and the regulator says there's no way i'm going to let you play with uh, non-professional investors so at the very least i will let you play with quips qualified investors and there's a notion of qualified investor in france qualified investor in the us and so on so which jurisdiction is more comfortable with crypto? Probably the US, probably Singapore. Um, in France, we have a crypto-friendly environment in general. Uh, the UK as well, Germany I hear. China is obviously on the other end of the spectrum because China has a control problem. It, it wants to control over its currency and so on and so forth. So it, it really is on the other end of the spectrum. But we have a number of jurisdictions that are friendly to crypto businesses 
but with always the same provision. Come on, guys, you need to do something about the non-professional investor because that one, we cannot give you access to. It's too early, it's mature. Uh, and that question is really the source of friction and tension between the crypto ecosystem on one side and the regulatory apparatus on the other. France is no exception. So there is a, this registration idea that you can go and see the IMF regulator and obtain a registration. It will help you because it's a proof of transparency. So the regulator will appreciate that you're going one step forward and you are making yourself known as a, as a provider of crypto services. Yet, it will not allow you to add, address any kind of investor. So even that, that registration is one step in the right direction. It doesn't open the doors to anybody's wallet, in fact. So now in terms of legislation and regulation, which one is more advanced, which one is more receptive and so on, I confess I cannot give you a definitive answer about that. But what I'm seeing in, in France in particular, but also in other places, is always the same, as I said, question, which is adoption, regulators is, is want to uh, regulate adoption of non-professional investors, because those are the ones that have the most, uh, where the money is, in fact. There's much more money in that compartment than there's money in the qualified investors. And institutionals, as we know, are a little bit late because they have custody problems, because they have regulatory problems in general. Um, so the, the, the time where uh, institutional investors will come in is not yet. Maybe they are looking at it, maybe they are playing a little bit, maybe they are asking questions, but they are not com coming in en masse into the market. Hmm. That's been a very interesting discussion. Do you have any um, questions, Hayate? I'm absolutely fine, thank you. Yeah, so uh, I think it's uh, it's been a good hour. Have, do you have any concluding comments? Uh, Stefan, on um, what will you be talking about at the Future Blockchain Summit and where do you see the market in October? <laughs> see, that's an easy question, Oscar. Yeah. Um, the, I'm, I'm a strong believer in the virtues of technology and, and the blockchain is not an uh, exception to that. There are, um, it's, been, it's been tremendous in its effect. Number one, to ask questions. Okay, because even though I'm a, I'm a proponent of, um, of regulation for all the reasons that I've exposed. Um, I'm not I'm not naive, and then then regulators need to be pushed need need to be pushed sometimes. Okay, so you, they need to understand that um, competition is around the corner. FinTech is uh, uh, disrupting the the financial uh, traditional system, and that's very good because the traditional financial system. Uh, has a strong tendency to forget about competition and to um, really um, uh, refuse or deny any innovation and so on and so forth. And so at the end of the day, the individual, investor, the individual investor is the one that pays for it. Okay, so the fact that the crypto ecosystem and the technology would, would push uh, questions to the traditional system, to the monetary authorities that control inflation and so on, that's fantastic. Okay, what is money? What is currency? Um, how much privacy do we need to have? How much uh, censorship is acceptable? Those are questions that were not uh, uh, asked before, loudly, I mean. And that, as, as an individual, I think they are very, very good questions to ask. So the fact that technology would push the question forward and would force uh, regulators, legislators, and the public, in fact, to answer, seems to be, to me, it's a very, very good point. Now, this being said, innovation 
um, in and of itself is not sufficient to justify um, uh, undoing a lot of things that have been done in particular after 2008 and so on. So innovation in and of itself is not, is not strong enough, it's not a strong enough driver to justify bypassing regulation that has been uh, designed to protect investors. So what I'm going to say in, in terms of what I hope for is a very, uh, um, very non-original, okay? I'm hoping for an industry which will accept that it needs to be regulated and a regulator that will accept to be pushed. And, and from that tension, I hope that we can get um, an actionable path whereby that technology will number one, converge to a few acceptable solutions and to a few acceptable solutions from a technical point of view and from a legal point of view and from a compliance point of view. Because by the way, we have like, I don't know how many blockchain, how many ecosystems and so on. There are too many of them. Okay, the, 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 the individual user, it's a source of opportunities and so on, but the individual user and the non-professional investor is lost. So there needs to be technological convergence that is happening or should be happening in the crypto ecosystem before even before you can uh, talk about adoption. I mean, the public, the general public will not adopt 20 technologies, they will adopt one or two. So at the very least, the crypto ecosystem needs to converge, that's number one. But then that's why when you, ask, when you start seeing conversion, then you can go to the regulator and say, look, this is what we see, this is the path we are ready to take, help us. Don't be stubborn and don't be, um, uh, old-fashioned, there must be a way for us to work. There must be a way for us to make that technology available to the greater numbers. Uh, and, and that's what I hope for. I think, you know, we are not, uh, we're still far from that, but that's because um, people have not measured how much uh, work there is to be done and they have not measured how much they need to work together. Okay, there, is, there is still too much tension and there is still, um, on both sides, um, um, too much misunderstanding for that work to really happen. But I'm sure in a couple of you know, years or so, I'm sure we'll see a lot more people working together from regulation on one side and technical um, uh, and, and, and technology on the other side, making innovation something that is acceptable. You just, you cannot plant the innovation and say, okay, this is it, now take it or leave it. No, no, it needs to adapt itself to, uh, the, the legal corpus, it's, it's uh, uh, that society have decided to adopt, and I'm sure at some point we'll get much closer to that than we are today. Well, if that answers your question. Great. Well, thank you very much, Stefan, and I look forward to meeting you in person in October. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Oscar. Thank you very much, Ayate. Thank you for listening. Subscribe for all the latest updates on FinTech in the Middle East and join the conversation over on our social channels. We look forward to seeing you at FinTech Surge in the Dubai World Trade Center from October 10th to October 13th. I'm Stephen Bess, and this has been the FinTech Surge podcast, creating a wealth of opportunities.